0: For the reading of Scripture this morning, we continue in the exposition of the Gospel of St. Mark. We come this morning to verses uh, 13 through 19 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed Him. And they went into a house. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. As I said, we'll continue the exposition here in Mark chapter 3, coming this morning to uh, verses 13 through 19. But I want to remind you that Mark's Gospel gives us straight talk about Jesus Christ as the Gospel source, being uniquely Son of God. So we're talking about the good news that is from heaven, that comes to us from the one who uniquely, one and only is, the God-man, uniquely the Son of God, the Son of Man. And as we come to chapter 3, we've been looking at a theme of each chapter, and here in chapter 3, Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. Now, I cannot overemphasize that. It meets us over and over again in terms of the supernatural, the parallel world that exists and that we only have um, uh, adequate knowledge of from Scripture. And we must be careful to limit our concern about that to what Scripture reveals to us. But we need to know that the good news that Jesus brings because of who he is is a supernatural salvation. It's not something that can be done or gathered or gained or understood by Natural or human means. That's the big challenge of the gospel, isn't it? And why we must be true to it and why we must not corrupt it by our own ideas that if we can add something to it, if we can make it more palatable, if we can make it more interesting, if somehow we can persuade people. We can't persuade people. We can be witnesses faithfully. But only the Holy Spirit can change the heart. Uh, In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, we saw that the new covenant life starts with saved life. By supernatural power over death. And the thing we emphasized there was not physical death, but rather original sins, results, and personal responsibility for actual sins. And we saw that in what happened in the synagogue on the Sabbath day when there were those from original sin's uh, results. That the man who had a, a damaged hand, a withered hand, we suggest that that was probably by accident, it seems from the language of the text, more so than by disease or by a, a, a congenital birth defect. It seems that his hand had been damaged. It doesn't say to us that it was damaged because of any sinful activity on his part, but it affected his life, and Jesus had compassion on him. Here was a result of uh, original sin. You and I struggle with the results and the fallout of original sin, even though we have been redeemed. We still face mortality. We still, and we saw last week, even Jesus was careful in terms of accident. He said, provide a little boat for me unless the uh, crowd comes and crushes me or could drown me and I could jump in the little boat and be safe. Because there are results of original sin that we must contend with in this world. And then there was the actual sins of those Pharisees who were plotting against Jesus, who claimed to be so pure, who claimed themselves to be so righteous, and yet what were they doing in their hearts and minds? They were plotting murder to destroy Jesus. So that's a powerful section, verses 1 through 6, that we shouldn't lose sight of, that in order to be in the new covenant life of the gospel, we must be saved. It's a supernatural salvation. In verses 7 through 12, as I said last week, we looked at that. uh, A new covenant life is not by human bloodline. It's not your people. It's not where you're from. But it is by the Holy Spirit's adoption through new birth, being a supernatural power greater than unclean spirits. So as people came from all around, and I told you literally, that passage tells us that people came from every compass direction. From north, south, east, and west, they came to Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't just a synagogue soar, uh, uh, goers that Jesus came and preached the gospel. He was again down on the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds were, were coming around him there, jostling him and pressing upon him, so much so that Jesus said, take a little boat and, and bring it along by the seashore where I'm walking that if I get pressed or, or lest I get crushed, I can jump in the little boat. I didn't want you to miss that detail. I thought it was so valuable to us about theologically understanding that Jesus was truly human. He trusted the providence of God. He could have suffered accident. And mortality and death were a reality to his humanity. He lived by faith in the providence of God. It was only through the power of the Holy Spirit that he exercised divine attributes. He did not act in the power of his divinity. But only through the power of the Holy Spirit in his humanity. That's a great mystery and wonder. And here Jesus says, provide a little boat so that I'm not drowned or, or crushed. And the people came from all around and Jesus manifested his power to heal and to save. And it wasn't by their bloodline. It wasn't what tribe they were from. It wasn't what their location was. It wasn't those from Jerusalem were of greater advantage than those who were from Galilee or those who came from outside of even the borders of Israel. But all different kinds of people came to him. And Jesus manifested the salvation of God in his power over unclean spirits. He wouldn't even let the unclean spirits make a spectacle. Because God's salvation is about the work of God manifest and revealed and witnessed, not by our showing some kind of display and and some kind of uh, um, sensationalism over demons. So I warned you about that. We talked about that in that passage last week. So this week we come to verses 13 through 19, a new covenant people commissioned under 12 apostles superseding, going beyond the old covenant, 12 tribes of the patriarchs of Israel. And, and we need to see here, this is a significant detail that, that uh, Mark gives us about the gospel and about the Lord Jesus Christ and the straight talk of who he is. He chooses 12 apostles He's going to qualify that for us even here in Mark's gospel. There is a balance of scripture telling us about the 12 apostles. And this is important to what Jesus is doing. This is important to the church of Jesus Christ. This is important to the new covenant. And the new covenant that is new and better and taking the place of the old covenant. By way of fulfillment and by way of reconciliation. And so... Jesus relocates to a more private place than from where he was on the sea, uh, uh, seashore of the Sea of Galilee. He relocates into a mountain, a place uh, where he calls or summons a select group of disciples to meet him there. Look at verses 13 and 14. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those uh, he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might uh, send them out to preach. So we find uh, the Lord Jesus, as was often his practice, to retreat to a more secluded place in the mountain, a place to pray by supplications and intercessions and communion with his heavenly Father and to seek God's will. In a parallel passage, Luke tells us that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer before uh, the calling of the the Twelve. And so as Jesus often went to the mountain, there to find some seclusion, there to find some place where he was in communion with the Father, in both offering supplications and, and crying out and begging God. we were told in scripture how the Lord Jesus entered into fervent prayer. He prayed and he begged and he sought the Lord, the will of his heavenly Father. And he interceded for others as he was praying. It wasn't just about himself, but he was praying and interceding for others in that communion that he had with the Father, seeking his will. And the emphasis here is on Jesus personally calling and summoning a select group of disciples. Um, he knew them individually. We're told that there were more than 12 that he called to him. But out of that group, we're not told how many there were, but out of that select group that Jesus summoned to come to him on the mountain, he, he chose 12, representing uh, the 12 he would have from those professed followers from his public ministry. And that's something I think you need to keep in mind as the Scripture suggests to us here, that, that no doubt Jesus knew these people. He called them by name. He he said, these are the ones I want to come to me on the mountain. It was a select group. Remember at one time Jesus sent out 70 disciples? Sent them out two by two? Commissioned them? Those were not apostles. They were ministers and disciples whom Jesus sent out. But, But now out of a larger group of how many we do not know, after passing the whole night in prayer and seeking the will of God and the wisdom and the direction of God's providence and purpose of His heavenly Father, Jesus out of that group... We'll choose 12. So Jesus made, he created, he constituted a group of 12 definitive apostles by specific qualifications. And so I want you to know here that that it's intentional. The the, the language of the scriptures here tell us that he made, that is, he he created, he constituted. It was something that didn't exist before. He didn't tell them just to take the place. He didn't choose some representative from the 12 tribes of Israel. He, He didn't do it that way. He constituted something new with the new covenant, a new group. It's intentional that there are 12 of them and that he sends them. The word send, that he he might send them to preach, that's the verb form of the the noun form for apostle. That's what apostle means, one who is officially commissioned or sent. And here uh, uh, Mark tells us that this was Jesus' intent. He chose, he made, he created, he constituted this 12 that they might be officially commissioned and sent to serve his purpose in the gospel. Now, the study of Holy Scripture clearly distinguishes between the call to salvation, expressly offering thanksgiving and worship for all Christian believers. That's what we do. All who are called to salvation respond. They respond with thanksgiving and worship as Christian believers. So from those multitudes of of followers of Jesus and those who made profession of faith to follow Jesus... He called a select group, we don't know how many, of those in thanksgiving and worship who were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that group, from those who were called to salvation, he calls out specifically for service. And that call to service is is varied. And sometimes that call to service is to ordained office. Jesus calls all of us to salvation, to testify and to worship him, and to be servants. If we are saved... If we have a saved life in Christ uh, uh, and the power, the supernatural power of His salvation, and we come in thanksgiving and worship to Him, we also live a life of witness. We live a life of service. As a matter of fact, the word for worship is often connected with the word for service. We're serving God and worshiping Him. But also there is a call to specific office that Jesus identifies and that is uh, qualified for us in Scripture. Ordained offices in Christ's church identified by gifts and qualification and we should not miss that here in terms of what Jesus is doing in uh, commissioning in constituting these 12 apostles they are in a specific office serving Christ in his church and they continue in his church today not on earth but in heaven and we need to keep that in mind we go on then to verses 14 and 15 Jesus 12 apostles would be sent out as New Covenant Gospel ambassadors with Christ's official authority. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then he appointed, he created, he constituted 12 that they might be with him and that he might send, that he might uh, commission them, apostolically might uh, commission them to go out to do what? To preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. And so we find that uh, here... Jesus commissioning these 12 gives them specific signs uh, and qualifications for what they are to do. Uh, we read elsewhere in Scripture, we'll reference this uh, uh, later in this message, uh, is that part of that qualification for being with Jesus, 12 that would be with him, was they were to be eyewitnesses from the time of his baptism to his ascension. They were to be with him. They were to be trained by Jesus. Jesus. They were to go out and be officially commissioned to preach, to tell forth, to herald the good news of the gospel. They were given power and authority. That's one of the things we've seen in chapters 1 and 2. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And what do the apostles now have commissioned from Jesus. They have the authority and the power to heal sickness and testify to God's redeeming, loving, cleansing, forgiving power and grace. This informs what their message is to be. I told you before, uh, Jesus was not about just healing people as often we do uh, think about in terms of a humanitarian care. I know Jesus had compassion. He loved people. He didn't heal everyone. That's a real challenge for us, isn't it? I told you and I I told you I, I would not by any means try to be um, dogmatic about this, but I believe Jesus' healing of the sick and restoring the dead was a testimony of a greater work that he was doing inwardly, and that was saving their souls. But Jesus didn't heal everyone who was sick. He healed many. He healed multitudes. I want to tell you this. Jesus saved more people than he healed. Now, I don't know how many times Jesus has healed me. I know I prayed to him a lot when I was sick and and when I feel like a, a little baby, I'm sick. I think I'm going to die. Please heal me, Lord. You just got a cold. you know. Maybe some of us have been in much greater straits. Maybe we've had a ruptured appendix or maybe we've had a, a life-threatening disease and maybe we're still struggling through that and we're praying for the Lord to heal us and the Lord to keep us. And he says he will because he will keep us even through death. And I will tell you this, Jesus has saved more people than he has physically healed. Do you believe that? That's what the gospel is about. Jesus saving people from their sin, from original sin and actual sin. He has power on earth and authority to forgive sin. And so he commissions his, his uh, apostles with, a, with authority and power over sickness and over demons. Uh, I won't get into it as much this morning. I've mentioned to you before that I believe Jesus defeated the works of the devil because the Bible tells us he did. He came to destroy the works of the devil. I've told you the only spirit you need to be concerned about is the Holy Spirit. And I have uh, uh, particular views about demon possession and and demon influence. I believe Jesus defeated the works of the devil. I believe he ended and restricted uh, demonic possession. But I believe the demons are real. And I believe there is demonic influence. But I think oftentimes we want to uh, give credit to the devil that really just belongs to depraved, sinful human hearts. The devil didn't make somebody do that specifically. The sin of their heart made them do that. And their rebellion against God. But Jesus gave this authority, the signs of the apostles. As a matter of fact, this is an argument that the apostle Paul makes about his own apostleship, that the signs of the apostles were demonstrated to him in him as a calling from God. And that presents another unique and interesting study of Scripture, how the apostle Paul was an apostle called uh, out of season at a different time than these apostles were called. But he still met qualification by uh, a a special uh, calling, and commissioning from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't have time to get into that this morning. But he was a true apostle. And so the calling, qualifying, and commissioning of Jesus' twelve apostles is identified and limited by the revelation of Scripture so that the offices and service continuing in the visible church on earth are ordained pastor-teachers, teaching elders that we refer to, ruling elders, church elders, And deacons, those who are commissioned and and who are set apart and ordained to serve. So pastor teachers, teaching elders, church elders, ruling elders, and deacons. Those are the three remaining office gifts in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists are in heaven. We don't have any further qualifications. Nobody can meet the qualifications of apostles today that they were to be eyewitnesses from the time of Jesus' baptism to his ascension, except for the Apostle Paul, which I believe the Lord Jesus appeared, and for three years, in in agreement with his three years of training and teaching the twelve apostles, that he had a special training in in the desert where the Lord Jesus appeared to him as a resurrected Christ in his ascension glory and manifest and taught Paul, and I, I can't say a whole lot more about that, that's my view, Again, I'm not dogmatic about it, but that's what I believe in terms of Paul arguing and saying the signs of an apostle were verified in him. Those qualifications were not even really spelled out qualifications for uh, prophets and for uh, evangelists. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Acts, Paul the, Saul the Pharisee who was saved before his apostleship was confirmed Paul was a prophet, a new covenant prophet in the church at Antioch. That's a detail that often uh, people don't know. Before his apostleship, he was a prophet, uh, uh, an attested new covenant prophet in the church at Antioch. And you know what Peter says about being an apostle? He says, in the local church, even though I'm an apostle, I'm an elder, I'm an elder in the church. That's the office that I hold in the church. Do you know that the apostles could not just come into any church and claim that they had uh, elder authority? The apostle Paul talked about being received in the different churches. Even though he was an apostle, he could only come by invitation. He would only come by agreement of the Holy Spirit. And he would recognize the brethren, the elders, and their God-given office and oversight, and would not intrude there. But he would challenge them to be faithful. As a matter of fact, there was a time when Paul and Peter had had a dispute even though they were apostles. You see, the apostles were not sinless. I believe they were infallible by the Holy Spirit and all they preached and all they taught in representing the gospel, but they were not sinless in their lives. They needed forgiveness. They needed cleansing. They needed to confess their sin like you and like me. And so these are really important things for us to understand about the workings of the church on earth. But it's not just the church on earth. When I tell you the church is not losing anything. Why? Because the apostles, prophets, and evangelists are in heaven. Peter's in heaven. Bartholomew is in heaven. Uh, the, The evangelists who were the deputies of the apostles, Timothy, Titus, they're in heaven. The church in heaven rejoices. The church in heaven celebrates. We're not missing anything. More is being added. Not by human will, but by the work of the Spirit of God. We're a part of something far greater. It goes beyond the limitations that we have in this little sanctuary or this little spot here in this town. And that's why we need to keep focused and recognized of the church and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. What have I told you many times before? Of what is Jesus the head? He is the head of His body, the church. Of what is Jesus the bridegroom? He is the bridegroom of His bride, the church. Of what is Jesus the King? Jesus is the King of His kingdom, the church. Not of this world greater than this world, uh, going beyond this world, transcending this world. We need to keep in mind when when we have the record of the 12 apostles being called here, we still have connection. As as an ordained pastor-teacher, my main calling is to minister the Word of God and the sacraments to you. The elders are to be supported as they're called from the local congregation. I can't call them. What a wonderful arrangement we have from Scripture. I don't just call a bunch of yes men who do my bidding. I am accountable to the elders of the local church here. It's a wonderful parody in the way it works out. I have more public visibility. And my preaching and teaching the Word of God carries authority. Not of my own opinion, but wherever I rightly teach the Word of Christ, it it is the voice of Christ. But the elders are to oversee and care for the flock. They're also uh, to keep me accountable in my life and in my ministry. They can outvote me on everything whenever it comes to a vote. Do you know I don't even have a vote in our session meeting? We have a session meeting tomorrow night. I don't even have a vote. I have a tiebreaker, which I do not like (laughs) because I have to take sides. Oh, we got a vote here and a vote there, and I'm going to have to break the tie. Can I abstain? But see how the parity and the working of the oversight and the care and the love of the people of God is something Christ has committed as a great shepherd of the sheep. And he's done this with great wisdom and care. He spent the whole night in prayer before he called the twelve out of the larger group. Of those whom he named. I believe Jesus said, I want you to bring these folks to me. I believe he called them by name. And then out of them, he names twelve. So we see verses 16 through 19 that he uh, called them Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, uh, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, uh, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So these are the twelve that Jesus called. The naming of the twelve here and in other references throughout the New Testament not only personalizes the New Covenant Church, but also sanctifies faith lessons for Christian believers about the church on earth and in heaven. I mentioned to you those who are in heaven, who are the original twelve apostles, those who are in in heaven uh, that we know of, and one we know, the son of perdition. What a great mystery that is. Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. But of those twelve, some are more well-known than others. We have more biblical information about some of them, Some of them were only given their names and and only referenced in a group, the 12. But we just don't have personal information about them. But from some of those we do have personal information, there are good faith lessons. We can have every confidence that of those original 12, 11 of them are in heaven in the honor of Christ and his service. And so there's nothing missing to the church here on earth because we're connected livingly and unitedly in a great mystery with the church in heaven. Some of the 12 apostles are identified by an alternate name. And you can look and compare lists that we have here in the Gospel of Mark with the other synoptics, with, with other references in Scripture, in the book of Acts and so forth. We have Bartholomew. Bartholomew is, literally means son of Ptolemy, but he is also named for us as Nathaniel. So Bartholomew and Nathaniel, the same person. You know about Matthew. We talked about Matthew's call recently, didn't we, back in uh, the opening chapters of Mark, how Jesus called him from his tax booth and how it is that Matthew left his wealthy station and followed Jesus. He gave Jesus a big uh, dinner party in his nice home because he wanted other tax collectors and, and those people of the streets, even uh, those who were uh, often referred to as, as the most sinful of people living in various immoral lifestyles. He called them and invited them and he invited Jesus and the disciples because he wanted them to hear the gospel. And so you know that Matthew is also known as Levi. Matthew, Levi. Levi. Then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, identified for us as different from the James, who is the son of Zebedee. So there were two that were named James. And sometimes James, the son of Alphaeus, is referred to as James the Less. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's less important. Maybe that he was less well-known. Or it could be one of those little ironies that uh, he might have been a big man, like being called Little John when you're a giant. We we just don't know, but he he was identified for us as different from uh, James, the brother of John and the son of Zebedee. And then there's Thaddeus. Thaddeus is also Judas or Jude. Perhaps he's the Jude of the letter of Jude. He might have been a a half-brother of Jesus. We're we're not sure about There's some uncertainties. But what's interesting is that he is identified for us, so he's not confused with Judas Iscariot. So there is a, a Thaddeus Judas who is not Judas Iscariot. And then there are some of the 12. Some of the 12 apostles are also identified with nicknames. I say nicknames. I think that adds a little bit of the person to it and and, uh, is interesting as we look at Scripture, adding personal and theological intention to why they're identified for us that way. We know there are some who are biological brothers. Peter and Andrew are biological brothers. Uh, James and John are both biological brothers. We have one named Thomas who is Didymus, who means it as a twin. Thomas is an apostle, but his twin sibling is not. We don't know if it was a brother or sister. But Thomas is an apostle, but his twin sibling is not an apostle. And then we have apostles with some various nicknames that are given, suggesting character traits or or associations. Probably the best known is that uh, Simon was called Peter. And you know that Peter is based on the play of words of the meaning rock. There's a lot of speculation about that. Did that mean something personal about Peter or did it mean something about his confession of faith as as he grew and as he came to more and more represent the whole 12 in his confessions of faith that it was for them all, at least uh, except for Judas. So there is uh, uh, this naming of Peter, Petros the rock, but what did it all mean? And then there's James and John, the sons of thunder. We still don't know what that means. Some think they were bombastic. They wanted to call fire down from heaven. Seems like that would have been more lightning than thunder. It could be that they were very eloquent, even though they were fishermen. Maybe they had a gift of eloquence, and elocution, so that they were a thundering forth the gospel and people listened to them. I don't know. We don't know what sons of thunder mean. We kind of put a negative spin on it, but it might not have been negative at all. It might have been something very good. Uh, they may have had thundering voices uh, like we've heard of some preachers in the past. Then there was Simon the Canaanite. Uh, We're not sure that this was either he was from the village of Cana, perhaps, or this term is also an Aramaic term meaning zealot. He may have come out of the partisan Jewish dissenters as there was a variety of different zealot groups. That's another concern about Judas Iscariot. Iscariot could mean man of Kirath, and if so, he would be the only one not from Galilee, Kiriath being in Judea. So it's very possible that Judas Iscariot was the only one who was not from Galilee. Um, or, and I think this is less probable, uh, Iscariot can be derived from the Latin uh, Sicarius, which means dagger man or assassin, which was also another known group of partisan zealots. So uh, Judas Iscariot, maybe he had been in connection with one of those partisan groups of zealots known as the assassins. I, we don't know. Uh, could be a location of where he was from but this is what we do know. What is always referenced to Judas? He's the one who betrayed Jesus. That's why we use Psalm 41 this morning. It's not just about Judas' betrayal, but it's about the way of the world and the struggles that we have and the heartaches that we receive and the realities. I mean, here Jesus chooses 12 and one of them is a betrayer. And we have some other information given to us along about Judas Iscariot. But it's something that should really Uh, really sober us up in terms of Jesus choosing the twelve here and how they served him and among them was one who was the betrayer Uh, Michael Card has a song that often I I think about and it it really struck me the way that he uh, poetically um, uh, expressed the betrayal of Judas, of Jesus with a kiss and that's not what a kiss is for I remember that refrain in the song that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, but that's not what a kiss is for. It's really punctuating that betrayal by something as um, delicate and something as intimate as a kiss. So there are remaining mysteries about Jesus' 12 apostles, not fully revealed from Scripture, but hinted about. Both Matthias and Paul are validated as apostles which increases literally the number to 13. Does that throw you a curve? Well, there's 12 apostles, but if we count Matthias and Paul, there's 13. Wait, is there a mistake there? Well, think about this. The patriarch Joseph's inheritance was equally divided between his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Guess what that literally numbers? 13. <laughs> if you take the patriarchs, the 12, and then you take Joseph, and you divide his inheritance equally between his two sons, I don't care how you count. I don't care that you only have 10 uh, toes and fingers together. You still come up with 13 when you divide Joseph's uh, inheritance to his two sons. I think one of the problems is that sometimes we want to overly literalize scripture. And that's a poor, in, uh, uh, that's a poor way of interpreting scripture. Um, so the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus are prominently figured in John's revelation vision of the glorified Christ and his church in heaven. But we must be careful in these challenges not to overly literalize our interpretation of Scripture and obscure the more important matters of New Covenant gospel salvation. This is one of the problems that I have with so much, and I hope you'll pardon the term, I often use the term prophecy mongering. And I get that from, remember the fishmongers? Fishmongers would go through the street and and cry out for people to buy their fish, buy the fresh catch of the day, and they were calling out, they were trying to um, get people to buy their fish. Or You might think of the paper boys in earlier days, not in my lifetime, uh, but I've seen uh, examples of the paper boys trying to get people to buy their paper, the paper they were representing, and so it becomes very sensationalized. This is what often happens with prophecy in Scripture. We lose sight of the importance of the gospel, and we give more attention to try to sensationalize by my interpretation, by my interpretation, rather than what do the Scriptures really get out here? So when it comes to this concern about the apostles and the fact that both Matthias and Paul are verified for us as apostles in Scripture, let us not be troubled with over-literalization as it comes to passages like the glorious passages in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Let us ask ourselves, no, what does this tell us more about the importance of the gospel? What does this tell us more about supernatural salvation? What does this tell us more about Jesus saving souls more than healing the sick? What does this tell us more about the church in heaven of which we are a part by faith? Than giving ourselves to concerns just earthbound. So... I also want you to be concerned about the many extra-biblical traditions and legends about the 12 apostles. I intentionally did not mention any of the traditions or legends about the 12 apostles this morning because we may favor some traditions and legends that does not validate them as biblically right or have biblical authority. Were the testimony of some of the church fathers true about what happened to some of the apostles? Maybe so. I'm not going to deny it and say, maybe that's what happened to Peter. Maybe that's what happened to John. I don't know, because it's not told in Scripture. And just because we favor some traditions and some legends does not make them biblically valid, okay? Okay. And your faith does not rest in legends or traditions. Your faith rests in the person of Christ and the authority of the Word of God that has been providentially preserved for us. God gave us as much information as He wanted us to know about the apostles. Some of them we only know by name or in a collective group, the twelve. As much as we know from Scripture, they were all faithful, devoted servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, except the son of perdition who betrayed the Lord Jesus, Judas Iscariot. And of course, there's deep mystery about that, isn't there? So I want you to be careful about legends and traditions. We are quick to point out the ones we don't agree with. But let us also be vigilant to know that anything that goes outside of Scripture needs to be tested by Scripture. Now, Jesus' salvation purpose creates a new covenant gospel people or nation. That's what this is all about. That's why there's 12 apostles. Because there is a new kingdom. There's a new nation. There's a new people of God through the new covenant. Not by bloodline. Not by your people, who you are, where you're from. But by the adoption of the Holy Spirit and testimony of the good news that is supernatural that comes from heaven. This new people, this new nation of the new covenant is the Israel of God it's referred to to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. You know who said that? The Apostle Peter, guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this new covenant gospel nation is under Christ's headship, commission. That's what the word apostle means. By his office gifts of apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists. I already mentioned that to you. They're in heaven. There are no apostles, new covenant prophets, or evangelists in the church on earth today because those qualifications cannot be met. They were specific to Christ's appointment of apostles. What we have remaining in the church on earth today are pastor teachers gifted and called by the Holy Spirit to service For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And out of the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit endows and gifts those who are to serve as ruling elders and as deacons. Recognized by people of the congregation for the qualifications that scripture gives. Not who you like. Not who you think is successful. Not who you think is smartest. Not who you think is going to to represent your interest. We've been talking about 1 Corinthians 13 in uh, Sunday school with Elder Brown uh, warning us and telling us about the problems at the church in Corinth. There were so many factions. There were so many uh, uh, private agendas and people who wanted their way and who would pick sides. And they would then look for those who would represent their interest. And yet, Scripture repletely tells us over and over again not to have partiality. And it is of an elder or deacon that they're not to show partiality. Scriptures give us these warnings. We need to believe Scripture, we need to follow Scripture. We talk about the church and the body of Christ. We cannot talk about that biblically without talking about the office gifts that Christ has given to his church to oversee and to serve. It's not for me to convince you. But the scriptures tell us that Jesus has called pastor-teachers and gifted them to preach the gospel to labor in the word and in doctrine and prayer and caring and feeding his little lambs. He calls us under shepherds. And that's Jesus' doing, not my doing. The Scriptures tell us that there are ruling elders within the congregation who are to care and watch for your souls, that they can do it with joy, and you're to submit to them. And they're to have the qualifications that Scripture sets forth. It's not the success orientation of the world. It's the working of the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in their souls and in their character. And that's why you're not to lay hands of ordination upon them as, novelty, as, novel, as uh, novices or suddenly. Somebody comes into your assembly. You haven't known them very long, but they come in and they manifest all the the trappings of success in the world. And look, there's nothing wrong with being professionally successful. There's nothing wrong with hard work. There's nothing wrong with good character that has been demonstrated by being a business owner. The warning is, don't jump at that. Don't look at the outward things. But pray and seek to find the character that is demonstrated. How does he pray? How do they attend worship? How do they... uh, uh, participate? How do they serve the congregation or others without wanting special notice or look at me? They show up to pray. They, they show up at work day. They show up for visitation or the care of the sick or send cards to, to those who are, are, are needing encouragement or these kinds of things that aren't what the world normally looks at as signs of success. How do the qualifications of scripture manifest themselves as someone gifted to then serve as an elder or a deacon in the watch care of Christ's church, the visible church on earth. And so when Jesus called these 12 apostles, remember, he had given the call of salvation. Many had believed on him and were saved. Some of those he called together to the mountain. We don't know how many. I told you, I think he called them by name and said, I want you to bring these people to me. There were more than 12 out of those who he had come to him that he summoned, he chose 12 of them by name. Some of them he gave nicknames or changed their name or they were identified for us so they wouldn't be confused with others. And one of them, he knowingly prayed the whole night before, but knowingly chose the son of perdition who would betray him, that the scriptures be fulfilled. Yeah, there's deep mystery there. But the deep, the deep mystery that tells us we're to live by faith and trust our Heavenly Father, as the Lord Jesus gave us example. Now, it is by the authority of Jesus and through his church on earth and the example and the uh, commissioning of the apostles that we have this Lord's Supper. Who did